Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Our fathers were not the buffoons and clowns that they would like us to believe. For we could not have taught them how to cook and to sew. We could not have built their fine homes if we were such clowns in Africa. They took wise people out of Africa. They took mathematicians such as were great builders. But they did not want that knowledge passed on to the young. Now to a remarkable story. New research says enslaved metal workers in 18th century Jamaica were responsible for a technological innovation that helped make Britain the first industrialised superpower. The court process, which allowed wrought iron to be produced from scrap iron, has been attributed to the British ironmaker Henry Court. Jenny Bulstrode, a lecturer at University College London, found the idea had come from Jamaica. She spoke to Victoria Uwanhunda and began by explaining how the technique transformed Britain. Within a year of the 1783 patent by court, British MPs were saying that this innovation was more profitable than 13 colonies. Within a few decades, British newspapers were thanking court for making British manufacturers millionaires. The Royal Society announced modern civilization is due to cheap wrought iron, and we owe cheap wrought iron to Henry Court. I knew court's patents well, but then I read an archaeological report of a foundry in Jamaica which was doing what court claimed to do with great success earlier than court, and that raised questions. I learned this foundry was run by 76 black metallurgists, described as perfect in every branch of metalworking, and I learned some of their names. Devonshire, Mingo, Mingo's son, Friday, Captain Jack, Matt, George, Jemmy, Jackson, Kofi, and Quasi. We know these men were enslaved and likely born in Africa, except Quasi, who was likely of Akan heritage, but born in Jamaica and a windward maroon from a community of freedom fighters once led by the warrior Queen Nanny, who took chains and shackles and forged them into weapons, forcing the British to recognise their freedom in 1739. I just wanted to briefly ask you if you've been able to find out where they might have learned about the art of making iron. These metallurgists likely came from different civilizations across West and Central Africa, which were established ironworking civilizations, some of the most important in world history. But in the Jamaican foundry, they worked together to apply new African and Jamaican ideas to old European technology. And they bundled scrap iron like sugarcane, fed it through grooved rollers like those found in a sugar mill, and performed a kind of mechanical alchemy that turned scrap into high-value metal. So what happened? to these Jamaicans in the iron foundry? By 1781, the innovation was turning a profit equivalent to £7.4 million sterling a year. And Court first heard about this because he heard about a fight between 
Kwasi and another freedom fighter, Three Finger Jack, said to come from the Congo region. Corpse well connected, he'd been banker to the King of England's brother. Within a few months, he'd laid out massive sums of money. Jamaica was put under martial law, the foundry destroyed, and its machinery and equipment packed up and shipped to Portsmouth, England, where court operated. And it's possible some of the black metallurgists were also taken to Portsmouth, but we know Kwasi lived to a grand age, a respected captain of the Maroons. Jenny Bullstrode, a lecturer from University College London, speaking to Victoria Uwanhunda. This would sharpen you up and make you ready for a bit of the old ultraviolence. Cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of racism. Man, I'm accustomed to having my uh, audio segments for the folks who are listening in live and all, uh, but for some reason, the switchboard just decided not to work. Uh, now, I will say, I said this when we were on the air uh, yesterday evening, that when we do programs that are substantially earlier than our normal broadcast time, already stressful and difficult, all of that good stuff. Whew, man, oh man, challenging Sunday. Just add the switchboard difficulties in there. But be that as it may, ready to roll for our broadcast. Give out the date Sunday, July 23rd, 2023. So I have been told now i was going to play the audio segment we listened to it i guess uh maybe three weeks ago i think uh we try to pay attention to the news on a regular basis and there was a segment on the bbc world world news podcast and they were talking about the theft of black intellectual property uh specifically black metallurgists in Jamaica and they had all of this amazing skill and creating pig iron and just remarkable industrial revolution uh, for Britain. They're responsible for all of this but to have all of this stolen and credited to a white person. I was stunned for so many reasons uh, not the least of which we did talk about reparations Uh, we were talking about that for California but for the Caribbean specifically, we've talked about that a few times. I said, wow, that is a very different way of even thinking about reparations for, wow, the theft of this property uh, and what this meant for the development of Britain, the UK at large. Wow, totally different way of thinking about all of this. Plus, even just from the US side of all of this, just days ago, I think we spoke about this yesterday on the compensatory call in. They've said this many times, but I mean, this just happened in the state of Florida. The great governor, Ron DeSantis, they just said slavery was the best thing ever for you black people. Outstanding. Just, you know, you should be thanking us, really, because you learned all of these wonderful skills. This research also would give you tremendous pause for that whole line of thinking, but that's real U.S. specific news. Anyway, our guest for the broadcast for today. Wow. The report that we are discussing specifically titled Black 
metallurgists and the making of the industrial revolution really fantastic fantastic work you can check it out uh, in addition to this report our guest uses an interdisciplinary combination of archival research oral traditions tacit skills and material science to research histories of material practices and how those practices shape differing ways of knowing the world her work sees seeks to foreground and center histories of marginalized sciences both for their importance to dominant traditions in the physical sciences and on their own terms we will try to unpack some of that today for her it's this evening for us this early afternoon joining us live from the UK our guest Dr. Jenny Bolstrow Dr. Bolstrow you're with us yeah, I am. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for sharing a bit of your Sunday evening with us. I thought you were laboring through the heat and such over there, but I checked the weather, and it's not terrible uh, over there. Uh, have you all been dealing with the temperature, the weather okay? Uh, in the UK, we can never cope with the weather. <laughs> it's wow. very challenging for us. <laughs> wow. Okay. Has it has it been, I guess, unusual, warmer than, than normal? It's muggy. There'll be storms tonight. There'll be storms tonight. Wow. Okay. Okay. Be safe, hydrated, all that good stuff. <laughs> uh, for our listeners, I, I tried to give them a little bit of the details. I guess you can tell us a bit more about what exactly you do at University College London. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a historian of science and technology at, uh, at University College London. Um, my background is really in, uh, in physics and industrial technology, um, but I particularly specialized in metallurgy, which is the art and science of working metals. Outstanding. We will try to unpack as much of your uh, great report as we can. I guess for listeners, and especially for this topic, uh, you're classified as a white woman. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Right on. Uh, for this program, uh, looking at the normal systems of dominance, uh, I think it's super important that that is named, uh, even though we're on totally different parts of the planet. Uh, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Is that an accurate definition? I, I definitely think such uh, system exists and I realize that you know I, I participate in that system whether you know whether I see myself as actively doing so or not you know my, my life is, is participating in that system so uh, I would like to try and work towards being an ally but I think it's something you you work towards um, and I don't think it's something that you get to designate yourself as having attained uh, or not um, but yeah, no, I, I would I would agree with that system. I think it's I think it's entirely systemic. I mean, but particularly within the UK, it's it's uh, embedded in 
in every in every building, in every institution, in every interaction. Processing. I was going to ask you, wow, what do you mean embedded? And then she explained that too. I couldn't. All right, all right. Uh... Well, I mean, if, if we look, you know, if, I, I work in London. You look around you and you see these big grand buildings, uh, these huge structures. If you see that accumulation of wealth, you know that it was built on enslavement. Uh, that <laughs> every every bit of the infrastructure that you see around you and and this this research speaks to that. These great iron-framed buildings, the, the temperate house at Kew Gardens, St. Pancras Railway Station, the, the iron railways, the iron steamships, uh, the, the iron bridges. These were, these were built from stolen black innovation. Black innovation developed under slavery, developed under colonial rule. So yeah, that, that, I mean, when I say embedded, I, I mean it's in it's in the social interactions, but I also mean it's in the it's in the material, physical world uh, that that people have to inhabit on a daily basis. Mm. Okay, I'm I'm flashing back to some of our other guests that we've had on the program that have been from your part of the world. Are you familiar with uh, the? He's a historian, James Walvin, I think is how you say his name. He wrote the book uh, on the Zong. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get out much because I mainly, uh, I mainly study steam engines and ironworking and things like that. But yeah, yeah, I've heard of his work for sure. Oh, okay. I just when he was with us to discuss that book, it, the full title, "The Zong: A Massacre, the Law, and the End of Slavery," kind of related to what we're talking about today. Uh, but he talks about how in Liverpool, it's just all of this opulence everywhere. Like, wow, it's just mm. amazing. Mm. Where did all that mm. come from? Oh, yes. The yeah. Negro slaves. Yeah. Yes. And and even he had the audacity to get sassy with me, Mr. Walvin. And he said, well, the black people were complicit in all this. I said, oh, well, can you point to the black city that is just opulent would say well they did sell out some of their cousins but i mean wow they got gold sidewalks gold toilets gold everything nope oh i mean this is this is something i i tried to engage with in in my paper because we we know from reports at the time that for for many uh for many africans within africa this was understood as a sickness this this human trade was was understood as a disease that needed treatment um and and for for some civilizations iron working was part of the way that you intervene in that but i mean, I, I think the the narrative around that the and the the uh, uh, apologism i guess is that a word um for for um european enslavement has 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 sought to promote this kind of it wasn't us right <laughs> despite all the glaring evidence and it's quite hard to deny a massive building but yet they do um but that those you know the the not just the the understanding of this as a disease uh but also the, the resistance that was uh the, the people fought back against it 
Um, they organized militias that they, they poisoned wells to trap enslavers. The, the captives overthrew ships and drove them into the ground, uh, in, into, uh, into the coast to, to escape and then used, and used fire beacons to warn other groups and, and, and bring support. Um, those stories aren't, aren't, they are, they are told by African scholars. <laughs> they are being told, but they're not, they're not told enough. And certainly not within, within kind of, um, European scholarship and, and, and sort of white North American scholarship. Glad she included our part of the world as well. Not taught enough here either. Uh, I guess before I transition to some of your great research, um, you, implicated yourself in all of this as a white woman uh, can you pick out one of the ways that you practice racism white supremacy as a white woman one of the ways that you do indeed participate in all of this so I suppose the thing that has uh, stood out to me through through life um, is that things have gone wrong for me and I've made mistakes and I've always had second chances always um, there's always been another opportunity, no matter how much I've messed up. And what I see with black friends is that they didn't get those second chances. There weren't second chances for them. Um, for, for much, for much, you know, less, I'm, I'm trying not to use a bad word, for much less of a mess up here. Um, and so that's, that's the thing that's, that's always, um, that's always, stood out to me particularly is that um that privilege of of opportunity and space um to develop a, you know and and to do the things i want to do that was just it was just doors shutting off for people uh everywhere um but i think it's you know it's 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 in it's in everything it's in how people treat you and it's in a space it's feeling like whether i belong in a space or not um you know, I was talking about these buildings and institutions around London, and I, I work in a, my my department. I'm a historian of science and technology. We we're not in the history faculty; we're in the science faculty. Um, I teach scientists uh, most of the time, um, and those those spaces, the the conventions, the the pictures that hang on the wall, they're so overwhelmingly whitewashed. Um, and I do mean, I do mean whitewash. That's part of what this story is about. Black people have always been innovators. They have always been pioneers. They have always been the engineers, the mathematicians. They've always been there doing this stuff, but you don't, they're not being represented, um, in those spaces. And they're not being, they're not being supported. So, um, you know, again, speaking to this we know in in the uk that um black students and academics are consistently undervalued for their achievements so white peers will get acknowledgement for doing the same work that that black students and academics don't get we know that we know that's true uh it's, it's been shown quantitatively um and so I, I suppose uh, I'm I'm aware of that, and I I I'm not aware enough. Uh, I uh, I think, like I said, I think it's it's a project of trying. Um, but I'm but I'm learning. I hope, and I learn 
in particular from from black colleagues who are generous enough to to um, share time and expertise with me. Glad it's going the other way around today in terms of you sh- sharing time and expertise <laughs> with us. Um, with that, just the way that you just shared it, that on this program for years, I have deliberately used the term brain trash not brainwash because there is no cleansing going on in a sense if we're talking about mm-hmm. giving someone defective information or misinformation to mislead them mm-hmm. there's nothing cleansing mm-hmm. going on you are really you know giving them rubbish uh, to harm them whitewash there's no cleansing going on with what's happening mm-hmm. here and even the people that are being credited like in your report Henry Court the people that are being falsely credited with these academic achievements or whatever else they've done uh, they aren't even white. They are classified mm-hmm. as white, which is not a color like that term for many reasons. We should, and I forgot even the term used before. Many times, what's happening, it would really simplify things because what this is, they are lying. That is way better than white because now. We're not even saying that the people up here are white. This is no Ivy. This is none of that. These are just people who, mm-hmm. Henry Court, you are a liar and a thief. Mm-hmm. Just call people. Mm-hmm. But now nobody is confused. We know exactly what happened. It's just a question of what did you steal? How much of it? Mm-hmm. Who did you steal it from? That type of thing as opposed to white. Why? No, there is nothing but mm-hmm. filth and crime here when I mean of astronomical proportions filth mm. crime and terrorism does that make sense what i'm saying about that even that term interrogating whitewash yeah, I, absolutely no I'm, I'm 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 grateful for you kind of unpacking that i think i think that's important yeah absolutely words are important uh just before we get to the metallurgy uh you contributed to the report migrants art artists materials and ideas crossing borders uh, your contribution the face of metal and the skin of a bomb some of that even just talking uh, we talked about that with uh, the so-called whitewashing uh, putting these individuals classified as white up and giving them all the credit and all the rest of that and even sometimes going over and literally using white the color to paint over statues and what have you so we don't have any dark representation at all that sort of thing being done kind of something different happening with this report I felt like I had to at least say a word because they've at least this side of the world they've had so much talk about Oppenheimer the new movie and Mm. we have been talking about bombs white bombers for three months now white bombers all over the world and that being a part of white culture I figured dang we gotta at least say one word uh, about this here report what are you uh, getting at in the face of a metal and the skin of a bomb so in that report I'm I'm tracing uh, networks of, of copper uh, around the world and I'm I'm looking at the different um, ways in which uh, different kind of systems of thought treated that copper and and um, and work used it there there I don't tend to think of knowledge and practice as separate I mean you, what you do with your hands is also something conceptual as well and and the way that they they work that copper and part of the point of the paper is to not think about what 
say shamans are doing when they work copper and use copper and what um, what physicists are doing. Because if you look closely at how both physicists and shamans describe what they're doing, actually they're doing something, in a sense, very parallel. They're not doing the same thing, obviously, but they are actually engaging in similar processes and you misunderstand what shamans are doing if you dismiss this as a certain kind of uh you know it's just it's just cultural and one's just science if you see what i mean that's not what's going on here so it's kind of an it's kind of an intervention in that it's partly uh it's partly an exercise in saying what what happens if you look closely at um, material cultures? So when people talk about, as you're saying, Oppenheimer and the bomb and things like that, they're so bound up and excited by this theoretical physics that they forget the very hands-on processes that are going on on the workshop floor. And what this paper does is pull back to that. And in a sense, it treats the physicists um, in the same way that maybe shamans have been treated by kind of anthropologists and things like that. And it treats the shamans in the way that maybe physicists have been treated by these kind of heroic biographers who write about the golden age of physics. Fascinating. The uh, different applications of copper, I guess that stood out as well. Uh, if we're going to be talking about making atomic bombs or whatever your other practices are. It also kind of stood out that separation because that comes up at, we discussed that in some of our other works, uh, Yurugu, I think that's a big, uh, I think that's a whole chapter in terms of different ways of viewing the world, which is in your byline, uh, different world ways of thinking about the world. Is everything compartmentalized or do you view everything as being related? Uh, United independent, uh, Dr. Welsing's, uh, United independent theory. I have to make sure I give the exact title, uh, but everything is related. Uh, and you talk about that both in this paper and your paper on the black metal experts of Jamaica, that they kind of had the same view that all of this is related. This is not separate. This even comes with the way that they blend the, uh, I guess, sugarcane milling process with their iron milling process. Mm. But seeing, the, seeing this kind of pattern repeated where the people who are not white have that kind of more all of this is together. The people who are classified as white, no, all of this is compartmentalized. Am I, am I mm -hmm. making sense kind mm -hmm. of bringing these together? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very wary of stories that, that claim that, you know, in a sense, uh, Europeans are connected and they travel uh, and, and other cultures are isolated and local. There's this thing about local knowledge and that it doesn't travel. It's not as powerful as somehow this, this, global western science and what that tends to miss is where the global western science came from uh, which is theft uh, overwhelmingly theft of knowledge from colonized people from uh from cross-cultural encounters um but it's also just a it, i mean it's it's a it's a falsehood it's it's an absurd um falsehood the smith uh, smithing lineages across across africa travel long distances uh, particularly in West Africa, they were linguists. Um, they were people who connected different groups. They were the conduit of ideas, experimental thinking, new innovations between between groups. Uh, the idea that these these people aren't 
connected, that they don't travel, that they don't have their own independent kind of communions and movement outside of the kind of European global capitalism network is is absurd. Um, and it's again, it's one of those those kind of falsehoods about presenting a certain kind of um, European domination as, as a gift um, uh, that, that has been, you know, okay, maybe there were these bad things, but there was this gift of, of you know, being interconnected and, and um, you know, medicine and, and railways and things like that. And all of these things are, these, are this gloss on actually this massive, sorry, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but this is, it's like someone's just looking at the tip of the iceberg and they haven't seen where it came from. The, the interconnection and exchange and movement of people, of colonized people, of, of the global majority. Um, that's what we're, that's what we're really looking at here. Context of white supremacy. Dr. Jenny Bolstro joining us live from London. I think you're our third guest, at least, from the UK over the last... 30 days or so I say we are union jack for the entire summer of 2023 um, so and you even include footnotes for the report on the black metallurgists uh, you, I think it's the third footnote where you have lots of information about what you just said the wealth of indigenous people non-white people throughout the planet uh, and their knowledge of all types of things uh, health medicine iron you name it uh and all of this being stolen and now people oh wow we've lied maybe they were not idiots and buffoons wow maybe we should not be saying they should you should be thanking us for all of this maybe we should be thanking you for stealing all of this and then terrorizing you all for generations on top of that but lots of reasons to get this report i think it's footnote three lots of other details and she points that out in the body of the paper um i guess what before I get to that report specifically, what exactly um, compelled you to this field of research? Um, so, uh, I mean, like I said, I, I trained as, as a historian of physics and industrial technology. Um, so right from the start, I, I learned about this innovation that we now know was stolen from, from black Jamaicans. Um, it, this innovation matters to everything from steam engines to the theory of thermodynamics. So it's really important. Um, I was very familiar with the detail of Court's 1783 and 1784 patent claims um, when I came across an archaeology report of a foundry in Jamaica doing what Court claimed to do, but several years before he was. And that's when I started to go through archives and baptism records. I learned this foundry was run by 76 black metallurgists. I learned some of their names. Devonshire, Mingo, Mingo's son, Friday, Captain Jack, Matt, George, Jemmy, Jackson, Will, Bob, Guy, Kofi, and Quasi. And I learned that these men were enslaved and likely born in Africa, um, abducted from some of the most important ironworking civilizations in world history, except Quasi, who was likely of Akan heritage, but born in Jamaica and uh, Windward Maroon. So it was really, I, I came from a training in, in European uh, history of physics and industrial technology, um, but I'd, I'd done a lot of work on different systems of thought around um, knowledge exchange, and that's part of what's going on in the face of the metal paper, that was my kind of previous work. Um, and I realized 
that I needed to learn about an entirely different system of metallurgy or systems of metallurgy because it goes with, it just shouldn't need saying, but maybe it does. Africa's absolutely huge. <laughs> and there were a very large number of extremely sophisticated civilizations, each with their own very particular um, metallurgy, are uh, highly experimental. I mean, that's one of the few things that you can say in common about African metallurgy. It's really experimental compared to um, European tradition, which is quite kind of stuck in its ways. Um, so I kind of, you know, realized that I needed to learn about this to understand what, you know, Devonshire and Mingo and Mingo's son and Friday and Captain Jack, Matt, George, Jemmy, Jackson, Will, Bob, Guy, Kofi, Quasi, what they were doing. Because if I didn't engage with that, then it was, I was always going to just be projecting, you know, what, what the Europeans were doing back onto them. You can't, you can't understand. You, you can't understand what they were doing if, if you do that. Um, so yeah that was that was the kind of way and it was kind of coming across this this report and going hang on <laughs> that doesn't make sense names are super important that's something that i've noted it's in her report and other interviews that i've heard with dr bolstrode uh she always names these black slaves uh who had this amazing technology i think that goes a long way they humanizing where these are actual people they had names not just slave number one or unknown enslaved person um it struck me kind of from the very beginning like just wow this is such amazing information uh literally page one of your uh report black metallurgists and the making of the industrial revolution uh you write we saw a great workshop with many furnaces where they made anchors, caskets, and every sort of marine equipment. There were so many black workers at their forge that you would think them cyclopses in Vulcan's cave. Metaphor. Finally, we saw the innumerable big and fine caskets in four large buildings, also missiles, shields, breastplates, mortars, small cannons, bows, lances, and everything well-made and plentiful. I say nothing of other equipment which is dispersed on ships on every sea. Nuremberg's stores are nothing in comparison how much lead, copper, saltpeter, and sulfur. Hieronymus Munzer, I'm sure she can correct my pronunciations, forgive. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, when the Feldrick, this end of quote, when the Feldrick physician and trader uh, Hieronymus Munzer visited Lisbon in late November 1494, he saw for himself that some of the most advanced ironworking technology in Europe depended on the skill of black metallurgists, the king of Portugal had the best of everything and that meant black artisans in the royal ironworks now that i mean wow particularly given they just said in florida you all were idiots and buffoons and were pretty much on par with monkeys this is a far cry from the royal ironworks is filled with black people in we're not even at 1500 in 1494 yeah, no, it's. I mean, I, I, I to to be honest, I was stunned when I when I came across that. But that actually, that 
is a reflection of the uh, the poverty of my own education. You know, in in I wasn't taught about enslavement at school. Um, I didn't I didn't know about the huge African population in Portugal at this time. Though there are there are uh, many artworks uh, depicting this, and uh, actually uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name either. But uh, let's go with Munza goes on to dis- describe um, this at, at length. That the, the the population, to his mind, is essentially majority black at this point. Um, that and they doing these highly skilled jobs, and this is what these this is what you know, European innovation depended upon black skill, stolen black skill. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, it, this working on this paper, and I, maybe I should say um, this paper took me five years, I think. Um, so it's been a long, it's, it's, it's been a long learning process. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I felt it I, felt very privileged to have that opportunity to to learn about that um and you you make the you make the comparison with what's going on with um in florida at the moment i don't want to i know i don't want to run ahead of of this conversation but what i've described for jamaica i mean i'm I'm dealing with a, a particular theft of a particular innovation but the 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 paper also points to uh, uh foundries in in virginia um where the the lieutenant governor of virginia, virginia reported that enslaved uh, black metallurgists were making very high quality iron wares um and this is part of what spooks the the british government and i don't know if we we're, we're going to get onto that later but you know if the the scandalous lie of that Florida legislation. I mean, it's just the, the earth should scorch. It really should. It is, it is shocking to, to hear that. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be shocked, but um, yeah, it's, it's the opposite. Um, uh, absolutely the opposite. It's, it's repeated. I guess you said we sh- maybe we shouldn't be shocked because it's been repeated. I'm so thankful we read uh, Basketball Sports are not that important for many reasons. And he would agree. Bill Russell would be the first person he wrote a whole book saying that sports are not even that important. It's shameful that I'm out here doing this. But he said one of the most offend. Bill Russell was almost lynched as a child in Louisiana. He didn't say that was the most offensive thing. He said the most offensive thing that he experienced as a black child growing up in the U.S. He got to California went to the library, read a book, and it said the exact same thing that they are saying in Florida now, but this was 1930s, uh, or 1940s, excuse, uh, and they were saying, hey, Bill, you ought to be thankful. This slavery thing is the best thing ever. You all were stupid Mm -hmm. and ignorant, about the same as a monkey, and we really helped you out. And he said he didn't know anything about black metallurgists in Jamaica or anything else he said even then as a child he knew this is out of this world like what are you talking about like that is repeated I guess since you're a historian why do you think white people apparently they find it really important a number of them over many generations why is it so important to repeat this lie frequently and all over the world what is the value of that 
these these uh, these inequalities that were established under under enslavement, they they persist today. I mean, we were we were talking earlier about black students and academics being consistently under acknowledged for their achievements. Um, that that is that's today we're talking about, and this is part of a narrative that justifies that. It justifies denying people proper credit for their achievements. It's a way of, you know, blocking out that that thought, you know, that actually, hang on a minute, this isn't this isn't right. Um, I, I think it absolutely serves a purpose in the in the present here and now. We we know that this extraction and theft is still going on under different names. Um, so yeah, I think it I think it serves a serves a purpose right now. Has to they to keep doing it. I mean, wow! And at such high levels, yeah. this is not you know some one tooth ignorant high school dropout in Florida. This is the governor who is already I'm running for president. He could be in the White House. Uh, about 18 months from now, who is, hey, slavery, A+. Maybe a few falls. In in the UK, we have the the British government saying, well, you know, but but Empire, empire, we we abolished slavery. (laughs) Again, the the shock. I mean, you tell tell a Jamaican that the British abolished slavery and they'll tell you something back. (laughs) I mean, we, we know... That this is not this is this wasn't something gifted. This was something that people fought for and civil rights movements fought for. Like this is this is not. I, I, it's completely extraordinary. And and what was brought in in its stead the the indenture, the the sharecropping, the extraction, and just extraction and theft under different names. Um, you know, different different guises of the same of the same system. Indeed, Stephen Lawrence. Oh, and they have roots to Jamaica. Stephen Lawrence, Doreen Lawrence, two-time guest on the program. Uh, I guess before I even move away from that, is we're reading about this in 1494 in Portugal, where they've got this the Royal Ironworks is filled with these black people, and you sit lots of black people are in this part of the world, Portugal at this time so is this some form of white supremacy at this point, like are these black people working for the king a a non, is this a white person or is this a non-white person, do we have some form of white supremacy here or no so I mean black folk were were, uh, long distance traders uh long before the the kind of euro african trade um and so there are there are black people around the world being you know independent uh traders and and scholars and diplomats and innovators but in this case in portugal portugal this is this is the um this is the beginnings of the human trade uh, and and very seen very intensely in in Lisbon, so these people are in, enslaved, um, and as I say, doing doing the the skilled um, the skilled work on which kind of European development depends. Hmm. Okay, so in this context, Portugal, fourteen ninety four, is this some early form of 
white supremacy racism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is setting up that um, that this is establishing that system. Okay, fascinating. Just I appreciate that as a hit. That's what I'm trying to learn as much as possible. Um, wow. So I'm um, moving forward a tad in the report you talk about it is footnote number three uh, if you get this report it's available footnote number three where she talks about the litany of institutions where it's not just Jamaica it's not just iron where this sort of theft of intellectual property has gone on uh, within the system uh, let's see moving down uh, you talk about the principal African ironworking heritage heritages among blacks black Jamaicans pre-1800 this was another one where I was really stunned I guess just ignorant learning a lot about everything you talk about the extent you already talked about a little bit of this but the the extensive knowledge that black people had on the continent about ironworks that this was on display even when white people came to start stealing their enslavement of black people that this was a big part of the trade and them showing off their extraordinary skill with ironwork Uh, can you share a little bit about what you learned about this um, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, I mean, in in terms of, and, and here we're specifically talking about the, the um, principal heritages among people abducted from Africa and taken to Jamaica, um, and that's that's primarily people from from um, Ibo land and from the the Volta region of Ghana and Togo Hills and and Congo River catchment, but also you know beyond those regions, these are. These are remarkable ironworking civilizations. These are renowned uh, ironworkers who, whose uh, wares are exported very long distances um, because they are such high quality. They have these amazing reputations for, for stunning swords and for artworks. Um, I, one of the things that the paper um, talks about is, uh, the, the, for example, the Benin bronzes are incredibly famous, these, um, these copper casts busts of royalty um and and plaques of figures um and they're they're very very famous very beautiful artworks what people tend to to miss is that in some of the most important ones um so for example i think in the paper gives the answer uh, the example of the queen mother bust of the queen mother um and her eyes are um inlaid with iron as an expression of her um of her power um, and so one of the things that the, the paper is getting at is that um, these in these different civilizations and in very different ways between them, one of the things in common is that iron has a huge importance and it's important both for practical purposes. It's also important for ritual purposes and, and spiritual purposes. Now, what those particular spiritual and ritual purposes are differ between groups. Um, West Africa is one of the most uh, linguistically and culturally uh, diverse regions of the world. Um, but So there are these differences between groups, but there's also this common point of exchange in the, in the significance of iron. And because of the significance of iron for these different groups, it's very, point, it's very often a kind of point of contact between groups. I think I mentioned earlier that um, smithing lineages uh, were were also linguists and they travelled long distances. So these these people connected groups with one another and were the the conduit for the exchange of of ideas. Um, 
Yes. Yeah, so sorry, I can't go on too much. But the the you know these museums in Britain, and I think it's this, it's absolutely the same in 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 the US in in the Met and the the Smithsonian. They are jam packed with the most stunning iron artworks taken from Africa by uh, punitive expeditions, looted, um, not traded, looted. Um, and, you know, the, the, some of these are on display in the British Museum, but it's not just the British Museum. Every, every local museum in the UK has uh, little kind of regional county museums, you know, to serve a fish and chips and you, you go along there. And they have a basement full of loot from the, the soldiers, from the army officers that came back to their local town and brought back these stunning artworks. And I don't know, can you imagine if, if uh, you know, the entire of Europe had all its, its statueries stripped out, um, all of its artworks stripped out and held in a basement somewhere? Um, I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary thought. Uh, but that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about here. Um, so these were these, these you know this iron working yeah it was about agricultural tools um it was also about um it was about st- stunning weaponry i mean the the uh asante swords are, are um works of art really um but uh it's it's also uh, about ritual objects and it's about about artworks and and objects of beauty the statue is amazing. If you get the report, you can see the picture. Uh, Queen Mother Adia, I think that's it. Um, mm. it. I mean, it's striking. And then the artworks, you know, like, oh, wow, the eyes, they do. Like, they got the brass there. Like, that is amazing. And then for this time, like, I couldn't make this now. But, wow. Uh, like, to be able to make this all those centuries ago. And even that, now she has it listed, courtesy of the trustees of the British Museum. How many of these do they have? piled up in museums around the planet that alone is worthy of thought like people that you have said are dumb and ignorant but you've stolen all of their art hmm yeah uh, and there, there were even there were even uh, fictions put about that these must have been made by Europeans <laughs> you know, because if you see something beautiful, you have to take credit for it, right? But they I, said they were yeah. ugly. They said they're uh, wait a minute. They said that they were ugly consistently. The phrenology and all that we just talked about the Nordic whites, the blonde. They said these people are ugly. So it boggles the mind. Uh, you write. Mm. Uh, reaching deep into the iron-rich Togo hills of Ghana's northern Volta region are some of the most extensive pre-colonial iron mines in Africa. The Mawu, Lolubi, and Santrakofi, who occupy these hills, are linguistically and culturally distinct from the Akan and other surrounding groups, yet in common with other iron-working societies in southern Ghana and the major iron industry centers of neighboring Basar Togo, they hold differing expressions of the concept that to manage iron is to separate the sacred from the defiled. These or closely related groups once mined the hills from settlements distributed across the Volta region. However, from the mid-17th century, they began to leave 
for the safety of the mines. The growing lowland states continue to provide a market for their intensive iron industries, but the expansionary wars that accompanied this demand had entered a new phase. Prior to this point, gold had been the eponymous Gold Coast's principal export, and the frequent conflicts between the po uh, polities had been short-lived. But this changed in the second half of the 17th century with a succession of major conflicts between different states corresponding with the Gold Coast, the Bight of Benin, and the Bight of Biafra, Europeans, and above all the British fueled these wars, distributing weapons to all sides so they could profit from the turmoil. As enslaved people overtook gold as the principal export, settlements became targets for raiding parties seeking captives to sell. Feel like I've heard that about a billion times, but always needs repeating because uh, I feel another one they'll do, they'll come in and do the blame. Well, you sold your brothers and you sold you, they didn't care about you. Ah, they sold you. So, well, wait a minute, who, who is most to blame? for all of this and instigating and keeping on oh yes 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 important to always keep that in mind dr bolstrode yeah absolutely and i think the other thing here is is the work that african scholars have done in showing how people actually resisted these uh these raids and how they fought back uh uh, using militias, planting poison to destroy raiding parties, uh, making use of medicines. I mean, like I said earlier, this was understood as a sickness. This was not something that people accepted. It was not something that people felt comfortable with, um, as, as some scholars have presented it. Um, the, the Benin kings who were involved in this, um, in this human trade, uh, record an ancient prediction that they would die at the hands of a European. This is something people understood as bad, um, and, and recognized to be, to be a wrong thing. And, and see, this kind of delusion that this was something people were okay with is, is also, uh, is also claimed about, about Britain. This was understood and at the time as a national crime. People turned a blind eye to it, but they knew it was wrong. They knew it was bad. And actually, it's uh, Hilary Beckles, who's, um, who's uh, VC at the University of West Indies and, and leads the Caribbean community, CARICOM, um, in, their, in their calls for reparations. He's written, you know, a hugely important work on, on this, showing this point by point in the evidence. And, and you see this every time that the, the, the Caribbean African scholars, they have to show the evidence so much more, so much point by point, so much more than this weight of white scholarship that's just people just throwing out statements <laughs> without substantiation, you know? Um, but, but because there's been hundreds of years of that and because they support, you know, their own publications, it's a whole system um, that, that supports that kind of convention reproduction. Um, it's it's very hard to to shift the picture, um, and there's there's a, a, too little awareness, and, and I count myself among among these, of of the Caribbean and African scholarship, and and uh, that that has um, that has really been doing this work for for you know well 
C.L.R. James, 1934, you know, for, for a very long time now. The great Henry Beckles, I uh, referenced his report. We were talking about Jamaica and white supremacy. We had uh, Dr. Lorna Durant. Uh, she was born in Jamaica. Uh, she's now in the States, though. Mm -hmm. But she was with us at the beginning of the year, and her father died from diabetes and her mother also suffers from diabetes, but she has it under control now uh, from eating healthy, lots of vegetables and green leafy fruit, uh, veggies and all that good stuff. Uh, but we were talking about that being connected to white supremacy. Mr. Henry Beckles mm. has a whole report talking about the explosive levels of diabetes for black mm -hmm. people in Jamaica and the Caribbean at large, but Jamaica specifically directly because of white supremacy slavery and how that radically changed the diet of what people ate there the black people mm -hmm. ate there uh, and mm -hmm. it's right in the middle of your report uh before i get to mm -hmm. the sugar because uh, we've been tough feel like we've talked about that all year long too you mentioned uh alato equiano in the report and that uh the appetite i guess i wanted to ask that because I, I thought that was important especially given how you you've written the report and, and you've talked about how this was apparently known for centuries. Wow. The skill that these black people have with this ironwork, was that a part of what was fueling the appetite for the slave trade, the, the known skills that some of these black people had? Yeah, and uh, absolutely. Uh, so I mean, you, you, get a, you get an idea of it with, with the account of the foundry in, in Lisbon in 1495, and you see how early that is. But I think one of the, the, the confusions here is that there's a common lie about slavery, is that the work involved was unskilled and low level. And, you know, you see this repeated again and again. But 18th century Jamaica had one of the highest concentrations of machinery in the world. I, I'm talking, you know, keep Manchester, keep Sheffield, 18th century Jamaica. Sugar depends on heavy-duty engineering mills and engines and boilers, as, as well as, you know, the maritime shipping networks. And the repair, maintenance, and innovation of all that technology depended on the skill and ingenuity of black metallurgists, just as, you know, distillation chemistry and crop science or population health depended on black skills and knowledge. So if, if you want to know who held the knowledge, you need to look at who was doing the work. Uh, enslavers targeted civilizations renowned for having particular skills. And, and this is, you know, I, I'm talking about one case among millions. We, we hear phrases like um, age of exploration or age of discovery or age of enlighten, enlightenment. These are phrases that, that, that they're pretty words for a period when Europeans traveled the world looking for highly skilled and knowledgeable civilizations with expertise from minerals to disease control, crop science, engineering, and abducted people from those civilizations in order to take advantage of their skills and knowledge. This is, it's, a, it's industrial espionage through the abduction of people. Wow, industrial espionage. That, I think too, that is a part of that lie why it has to be repeated generation after generation all over the world apparently that no 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 these were just idiots and you all just were out in the field doing unskilled 
manual labor that is in particular talk about reparations or anything else i would think radically different about myself and a whole lot of things if it's oh wow these were extraordinarily skilled intelligent people some of the most intelligent skilled in the world and that's why they were abducted so that you could go and still take credit for all of their amazing intellect and then make them do all this and you can exploit their labor on time like wow that would give me a very different thought process about all of even you like why are you having to steal all of these ideas from people like what mm-hmm. man uh the, the remanufacture uh i think that's right with the whole sugar jamaica the sugar and the iron uh what does that mean in the context of i guess colonial jamaica this time frame remanufacture yeah okay so i mean and and i think this will this will bring me back to the kind of the virginia story that i that i touched upon earlier and from from the early decades of the 18th century the british government imposed really tight restrictions on secondary industry in the colony so in particular iron production so by secondary industry, and I mean anything kind of higher level production. Even under these tight restrictions, um, the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia reported that enslaved black metallurgists were making high quality ironwares that could outcompete British products. So black skill and knowledge with metalworking was a real threat to British industry. You don't want your colonies competing with what you're doing in the in the domestic country. Remember Britain was the so-called workshop of the world. Most of its wealth came from forcing colonized nations to become captive markets for British manufacturers. So it, it didn't want competition. The threat that a plantation iron industry built on the theft of black skills and knowledge might outcompete Britain in manufactured wares was so great that in 1750, Britain's protectionist parliament uh, reacted by passing an act banning any kind of metal milling, uh, power hammers, or furnace for making steel in, in the Americas. And this, this Iron Act suppressed the development of iron industries in the United States and in the British Caribbean, but it didn't stop those developments. It was suppression, but it didn't stop them. It just drove them off the British government's radar. Sorry, that's anachronistic term, but you know what I mean. Government documents remain a major source for historians, but that's one of the issues here. These high-level industries, depending on black skill, took place off record, off government record. So this this idea of, of remanufacture, this is this is basically this culture where you have these, like I said, plantation production depends on a lot of machinery a lot of machinery. Machines break down, they need constant repair, there's iron work everywhere. Iron and this production, it's, it's, it's ineluctably linked. As stuff breaks down, it's the skill of black metallurgists reworking the iron um, that, that repairs, that innovates, um, that maintains machinery. These guys are the engineers. So what you see is this culture of of remanufacture is the is the term used at the time um where where scrap iron is turned into something higher quality and we know that the um on on the continent in africa um african metallurgists were very used to dealing with with european iron european iron never outcompeted 
African iron within Africa. African iron was much higher quality. But African metallurgists would accept the highest quality European iron that Europeans could get hold of, and they would transform it into something better. So they were very used to dealing with European uh, materials. Um, and within the, within the Jamaican context, the Caribbean context, and with other plantation contexts, as the Virginia example shows, um, they were taking, um, uh, they, they were kind of looking in different ways. They were applying African thinking and, and uh, Caribbean thinking and, and black American thinking to um, old European technology. And, and European materials and transforming them into something better. Wow. She told us at the beginning, experimental technologies in Africa, even yeah. that being, you know, so cre innovative. That was really, I was thinking, but that's the same thing, creative to, wow, different setting, come up with something new or take something that's inferior and you can reform it and now high quality that is amazing and again that is so far removed from the way that we are normally lied to to think about black people of this time period and the people that were stolen uh and forced to do this labor uh and tortured uh into doing all of this and then then with that context of then and you include this i'm reading directly from the report bottom page five uh you write with its poor quality domestic iron production Britain had relied on imported Swedish iron to meet these metallurgists' high standards since at least the 1650s, while frequent letters from company factors show they could only sell the best quality branded iron without flaws. With other trade goods, counterfeit was a regular part of company profits, even involving the sale of bales of scrap iron concealed under a coating of brass. But with iron, the fine judgment of African smiths kept the company at the mercy of continental markets. On the 7th of January, 1724, the company shipped 20,269 bars to Waida and Sierra Leone, Sierra Leone. But just three months later, struggled to find even 1,800 bars of the requisite quality for their Cape Coast castle playing a paying a significant premium to be able to complete the modest order. Now, I mean, that right there, geez, uh, you're kind of mediocre at all of this. Like, you've cornered the market. You just you put in all these rules and restrictions. Like, all right, colonies, you can't compete with us. That's what we're trying to do here. We're supposed to be the engine. We produce everything. And you're kind of mediocre. And not even... You're dishonest, doing the counterfeit and every like, oh my, we got the fake reports and fake nurses and all of that. Like, geez, it just, if I knew more about this, I would think very differently uh, on all of it. Like when I've seen that with regards to colonial times over and over, that's in the half has never been told. He's, you have all of these white people where they are cheating. They've done all this to put themselves in an advantage. And they still can't do anything. Mediocre at best. Go bankrupt. Go on to Texas. Remember that he has a whole... Uh, did, anything that you want to add to that part, Dr. Bolstrode? Um, Well, I mean, yeah, two things. I mean, A, just as you say, I mean, and for most of the for most of the 18th century, British ironware is really poor quality. It, it breaks. It even crumbles. Um, and it, it's this stolen process that will transform that and transform 
British Iron production. But also, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, the person who, who first really pointed this out about um, African metallurgy and actually focused on the Portuguese trade, but about the, the you know, discernment of African smiths and their superior metalworking skills, the person who pointed that out was Walter Rodney decades ago. Decades ago. Um, his, his dissertation, his PhD dissertation. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's this, uh, you know, this, this body of white scholarship has just not been paying enough attention. You know, that, that, that's, that's what's going on here. This work was done decades ago, um, by Walter Rodney. Uh, I mean, there's there's been papers in the last kind of uh, decade that that kind of uh, detail this this uh, Euro African trade around iron and, and the the um, the really hard time that African smiths are giving giving the Europeans for their poor quality iron. But to my mind, it's very much um, really kind of republishing what what Walter Rodney did in in great depth, uh, uh, you know, as his PhD dissertation. Right on. That does happen quite a bit uh, where black people, non-white people will do work or make discoveries and it ends up being stolen, credited to white people or they'll ignore it for all, especially if it's anything that's dealing with racism. Like, oh, yeah, that's yeah, we don't want to hear about it. Maybe we'll wait until the person passes away. I think uh, one of our listeners would really appreciate any information that you could share about how all of this, uh, the black metallurgists in Jamaica how this helped create the maroon community you already resistance resistance to white supremacy racism in Jamaica because I found that I mean being able to take shackles and make weapons I just making it important to give out credit I think some of this you talk in your report is it tacky's revolt the story of an Atlantic slave war uh, is that a black author as well uh, Professor Vincent Brown, yeah, absolutely, a phenomenal scholar, and and that's an amazing that's an amazing book. Uh, he's he's writing about an episode in the 1760s, so it's a couple of, uh, it, it's it's not um, specifically in uh, an episode I cover in in that paper, uh, in in my paper, but his um, analysis is I, I would recommend that book to everyone. His his analysis is fantastic, very very important work putting that on my list to read as well tacky's revolt but with the uh maroon community the black or i guess for folks who do not know kind of what that is and then the importance of their understanding of ironworks in order to resist uh white supremacy slavery in jamaica yes for sure so um jamaican maroons today are descended from from black freedom fighters um, pr- predominantly, they, they identify as having a- Akan descent, um, black freedom fighters who forged free autonomous communities in the island's interior um, under Spanish and then subsequently British slavery and, and colonialism. Um, and that they were they fought under the leadership of, of legendary fighters and strategists such as um, uh, Kojo and, and the warrior queen Nani. Um, and they waged war on the British and were able to force the British to formally recognize their freedom uh, in, in 1739, 1739 and 1740. Um, 
together with uh, you know sophisticated skirmish tactics um, and innovations in food technology um, to preserve their health, one of the most important factors in their victory over the British was was their ability to take chains and shackles and forge them into weapons. So uh, an enslaver who spied on the Maroons for the British wrote a report that's in the British Library today. Um, and he described how the Maroons forged their own ironwork, making knives, cutlasses, lances, rings, bracelets. So they were transforming chains and shackles into weapons, but also into objects of art and beauty. And the enslaver described how the Maroons used these giant bellows and made of wood about six feet high and, and constantly worked by four Maroons, two on each side, to maintain the power of the furnace. It's quite an extraordinary operation. Do not think this is low level. They're using bellows that are six feet high. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, it's extraordinary stuff. Amazing, amazing. Um, and this extraordinary uh, skill, in fact, they're even figuring out how to do their processing of the sugar cane, which you've already told us, which is an extensive process, they've kind of figured out how to blend these two together. And once I thought about that, like, wow, if you got people who are making extraordinary iron, even contraband, and then you've got all this sugar cane, which is explosive crop all like, oh, I could see why Jamaica would be such a profitable little island. Like, wow. But that also their innovation to be able to figure out machining where you can do some of this together uh, with these rollers that they figured out. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, basically, and this is within within the um, the the foundry with the, the seventy six working there. Some of these guys are enslaved, but some of them are, are maroons. Like like Quasi is also in the foundry, and they they take this. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're thinking in different ways to their European peers. They have new ideas. They're experimental. They're also working together across. Huge differences, and this is what this is one of the reasons Vincent Brown's books so amazing is he's talking about these these communions that are kind of hard won across like political and and regional differences. These people come from from different places, they speak different languages, but they're working together um, for for a kind of communal end. And and these these black metallurgists they have very high status among their communities. It's one of the things that the um, the enslavers actually report about them, and it's one of the reasons that they're, they're kind of threatening to, to the white enslaver population is that they are they are considered powerful people. They're important people, um, and what they do is that they they're seeing they're seeing both the sugarcane, which is where these you know it's, it's the working the sugarcane together that you forge these communions and you you plan for uprisings, right? You, you you plan to overthrow um, this this kind of enslaver dominion. Um, the, that the sugarcane has a kind of different significance to to them. The bundling of the sugarcane has a different significance to them than it does to the to the white enslavers. Um, the the husks of the sugarcane are what you burn when you start an un, an uprising. When you burn enslaver infrastructure to the ground. They are they are a weapon. They are a beacon to call allies, and they are a weapon. So, you know, one of the things I ask you to do is to think about sugarcane 
differently in this in this paper. Think about sugarcane in terms of what it meant to freedom fighters. Um, and that's what these guys were. They were freedom fighters. Um, so one of the things you, you see in their, in their process of, of transforming um, the metal is that they draw on uh, African thinking. And one of the ways with across these different African civilizations, one of the ways in which alliances could be forged before maybe you went to war or you, you uh, were going to go through a struggle was the exchange of bundles of blades, the bundles of weapons. Um, and one of the things I want you to think about is how the sugarcane was being bundled like a weapon because it was, in a sense, a weapon for a planning of an uprising and that how the, the scrap iron was bundled like the sugarcane. And what happens next is they bundle the scrap iron like the sugarcane and they feed it through grooved rollers. Now, in the European tradition, only smooth rollers are used to mill metal. You take uh, new metal... Um, you take sheets of new metal and you feed them through the smooth rollers to make the metal perfectly homogenous. So you don't get these grooved rollers used in this way in the European tradition. That's absolutely key for the innovation. Where you get grooved rollers is in sugar mills. Who's working sugar mills? Who's repairing sugar mills? Who's maintaining sugar mills? Who makes that iron technology? It's black metallurgists. Those are the guys who hold that knowledge. And what you see them do is feed bundles of scrap iron, bundled like sugarcane, bundled like weapons, through these grooved rollers. And in doing so, they perform a kind of mechanical alchemy that transforms scrap into this really high-value metal. It takes brittle, crumbly, poor-quality British iron and turns it into something with an elastic tensile strength that can be used to build these phenomenal structures, the Crystal Palace, Kew Gardens, St. Pancras Railway Station, these, these great iconic buildings, the, the, the sites of London, right? But also, you know, the Indian railways, the iron steamships, Brunel's great iron steamship, the Great Eastern. Do you know that there's a famous picture of the guy with the top hat standing in front of those giant chains? Those chains, that giant steamship made using this process, it, it was transformative. Um, and, and all from that, you know, crumbly, brittle iron, but this ingenuity with that metal transforms it. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. <laughs> important, important context of white supremacy. You put it in the title, black metallurgists and the making of the industrial revolution right in the title uh, and even specifically with the maroon aspect we had a listener who said there's not enough research on this and i said Psh, yes there is uh, white people researched all kinds of things about their system there's lots of uh scholarly research already done on the maroons in jamaica uh, but you write kenneth bilby's work has shown how a repertoire of ritual songs record windward maroon sacred histories through the performance of the traditional ceremony of Cromanti play. The ritual name Cromanti recalls Cromantes, once a British designation for captives of diverse heritages traded via Fort Cormontan on the Gold Coast but subsequently reclaimed by black Jamaicans 
forging powerful political communions that fought back against British enslavement. Central to Cromanti play is an instrument known as the Adawa or iron, which usually consists of the blade of a machete, afana, and a small piece of scrap metal. As Bilby explains, almost any metal object can be adapted and used so long as it resonates sufficiently. Working the weapon and the scrap together, the instrument takes on a paralinguistic capability. In skilled hands, iron will speak. In the living history of Cromanti play, white men set an African smith to making handcuffs and shackles to trap the maroons, but when the maroons came, the African smith took up the iron that was meant to shackle them and instead used it to speak a warning in a shared African language. Footnoted within this science, playing the iron transformed shackles and chains into a warning to preserve maroon freedom. Wow. Great detail. Is uh, Kenneth Bilby, is this black scholar as well? Uh, Kenneth Bilby's a white scholar. Okay. Um, one of the things I respect about Kenneth Bilby is that he did this work, you know, four or five decades ago, well, actually long, longer now. Uh, so in the, in the 1970s. And at the time, the Maroon community didn't want him to publish it, so he didn't, and he waited. Um, and only about a decade ago, they decided they did want it published because they were now so under threat and they wanted their... Uh, there's been challenges to their, their sovereignty. Um, and they so they did want it published as part of that. Um, but he, he waited, so I have, I have respect for him for, for doing that, as well as, you know, having... He's really done the really kind of in-depth um, engagement with the Windward Maroons, and his book *True Born Maroons* is really a it's a report of their oral history. It's not it's not Kenneth Bilby kind of writing about himself. It's where you can go to read and learn about their oral history. So I would I would strongly recommend *True Born Maroons* as a book. Yeah. Said decades ago. Wow, that's see. That's why I said they study. I do think that's admirable. If they did not want the work to be published, to wait. That is that's like rarest of the rare. That's like Albano Chipmunk rare, <laughs> where a non-white person's yeah. concerns are like what, what? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we'll do that, or we'll wait until you change your mind. Like that is stunning. <laughs> like I'll have to get that book yeah. just on principle uh, and. I also, the same, I'm not surprised that they would repeat that slavery was good for you all because you're so dumb and stupid that, oh, wow, even at this point, the Maroons are still under attack, it seems, and like unrelenting, like, dang, truce, let it go, no, dang. Uh, The three-finger jack there's so many i feel like this all of this is so important i could see why it might have taken five years to mine all of this because i feel like there's a willful suppression of the resistance to racism white supremacy especially if there was any sort of counter violence 
uh, involved in the resistance, and I feel like this is all over the world. This is deliberately willful. Shh, keep quiet. We're not going to talk about it. We can go back to talking about Oppenheimer, and yes, we bombed all of them. Yes, dude, we can brag about that all day long. Three Finger Jack? Um, well, I mean, Three Three Finger Jack is a is a national hero in in Jamaica. Um, he's he's like the equivalent of Robin Hood. I don't I you know I don't know if that's got the same significance in um, in America, but he's you know he there's there's he's very well known um, as a as a you know freedom fighter who who fought to so he was he was a um, fugitive from St Mary's estate. He led a group of some fifty eight enslaved people to. Um, to, to uh, fight for their freedom, they uh, um, in the I, I can't remember the the site that they um, that they take up settlement in, um, but he's he's an extraordinary he's an extraordinary figure, and you know the British throw everything at him, uh, and he resists and he resists, um, and eventually he is killed in a fight with Quasi, who comes from the um, who is this uh, one of the black metallurgists from the foundry and i think one of the things that this this articulates is the complexity of these relations right and if you if the british represented that as uh they represented quasi as a christian slave um who was baptized and you know took um took the christian faith um and then was able to overpower um three finger jack uh with with the him by by um taking uh, being baptized under christ um the maroons the windward maroons uh whom quasi belonged to remember this very differently um and they talk about it just in terms of you know sometimes we just have a fight he wasn't acting on behalf of the british it's just one of those things um but they also it's not only that they remember um the death of jack very very differently um and I, I should probably mention that so the Maroons uh, identify with Akan heritage. Um, Jack was identified at least by the British, and, and this was kind of publicised a lot at the time that he came from the Congo River region. And this would have kind of potentially set him up as a as a rival, um, as as a as kind of an enmity between groups potentially. Um, but the the Maroons, as I say, they remember this differently. They're not as acting on behalf of the British. Um, but as uh, you know, just you know, sometimes you, you sometimes you get in fights with people, um, and that Quasi and Jack had had passed, had had history between them. But they also remember that at that at the site of Jack's death, um, his his partner and his baby uh, escaped um, and went on and and lived free in the interior of the island. They survived and they live on. And the Maroons remember the site and commemorate the site where she escaped with the baby. Um, so it's it's a very different understanding to how the British kind of colonial regime would like to have remembered this in that kind of divisive project that you see again played out under colonialism again and again that pitches marginalized groups against one another, pitches oppressed groups against one another, fuels conflict between groups. Um, the the story as remembered by the Maroons is very different from that. Um, yeah, sorry, again, I'm, I'm going off on one. Important. I didn't know uh, Three Finger Jack, even though I have been to Jamaica, I didn't do enough 
research while I was there, but you do write about that, the control over how memories, just control of, of memories and uh, the importance of having uh, national heroes. That is super important. Uh, the, the Speaking of national heroes, uh, you said that Henry Court's family members were embedded in the system of slavery, that word again. It, what, what, what do you mean? His whole family is involved in this directly, indirectly somehow, benefiting off of mistreating black people? Well, yeah, I mean, I think one way or another, the population of Britain, if we're saying directly and indirectly, is. But with the specifics with Henry Court, I mean, Henry Court came from Lancaster, which is Britain's fourth largest port for the human trade. The enslavement system uh, has been in this period has been described as Lancaster's staple and lifeblood. Um, he inherited a private fortune from his father's involvement in that human trade and enslavement system. And it was that fortune which set him up as a banker aged just 16 and with his own firm by the age of 24. So this guy is not someone who came from nowhere. It's a lot of private wealth and it's a lot of private wealth based in the enslavement, you know, from the enslavement system. Other members of his family were either investors in the enslavement system or actually merchants trading between Britain and the Caribbean. And in fact, you know, after his death, his children set up as enslavers themselves in Burbies. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in that you can't, one of the crazy things about Henry Court is that historians, although there is no evidence no evidence at all of him doing any experiments or developing this iron working process before he patents it. Before he patents it, he's on the verge of bankruptcy and he says he has no way of working up these piles of scrap iron without making a loss. His foundry has taken on an admiralty contract that he thought he was going to make a quick profit. Instead, he ends up having agreed to accept piles and piles of admiralty scrap iron and he has no way of working it up without making a loss he's on the verge of bankruptcy and suddenly he patents this transformative innovation having what two decades experience in banking and no experience in in iron working and and running an iron foundry and yet historians have tried to understand him in the lineage of iron masters tried to make sense of him as another Iron master, um, but that's not that's not how he needs to be understood. He needs to be understood as a banker who had these extraordinary global connections. So he was banker to the King of England's brother. He was banker to a lot of the admirals who admirals who were posted in the West Indies, and he used to manage what they call um, prizes, which are cargoes and vessels and equipment that are captured in military action. And that's exactly what happens with the foundry. He gets news of the foundry from his cousin, who's a trader traveling between um, Jamaica and, and normally between Lancaster, but he gets taken off course and ends up in Portsmouth, bringing the news of Three Finger Jack at the death of the hands of a maroon named Quasi, who's baptized after this foundry, this foundry that is making a profit equivalent to 7.4 million pounds sterling every year and just phenomenal profits and there's henry court who's up to his eyeballs in debt facing bankruptcy 
and he hears about a foundry that is able to take scrap iron and turn it into the most valuable kind of iron and make phenomenal profits. And the next thing you know, he's laid out more money. Now, one thing I should say about Henry Court is everyone, all historians already knew he was a thief because one of the most famous things about him, although it's often attributed to his partner, but he was involved, like I say, up to the eyeballs, is that the money he lays out is embezzled from Navy wages. It's not his money. So he embezzles a lot of money. He embezzles more money. He lays out this money. And the next thing you see is that Jamaica is put under military law and the foundry is raised to the ground, packed up onto ships and transported to uh, Portsmouth, where Henry Court runs an iron foundry. And the next thing you find after that is there are sugar rollers, grooved rollers in Henry Court's works in Portsmouth. Um, so, you know, when we talk about this kind of embeddedness, it's these, it's these networks of finance, but it's also these networks of power to, to put a word in someone's ear. You know, remember the, the foundry in Jamaica was illegal under the British colonial system. So you just need to tell the right person, give one of your wealthy contacts a nudge. Remember, he was banker to the King of England's brother, banker to all these admirals. You just need to give those little, you know, nepotistic networks a tug. Uh, and and this whole kind of concatenation of events follows. What is that word again? What say that again? Con- con- what say that again? Con- 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 concatenation. Wow. I don't know. I think it's like, when you know, things kind of tumble one after another, you know, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm making it sound, I'm making it sound too easy, but that's what I mean by the embeddedness. You know, that that the the, the power of these networks, right? The, the yeah. Tell me about it. System of white supremacy, racism. Jeez, that she's used two of our. These are words that are you know regular. Well, I won't say regular, but these are words that are significant to this broadcast and have been for over a decade. One of them is nepotism. Say that all the time. Mm. White people are the masters of nepotism and cronyism. Oh, my God. Every cousin. She said that. She said that. Our guest, Dr. Bolstrode, she said that I get in trouble and I'm still good. (laughs) I still get opportunities. (laughs) And I, I told you it's all over the world. And the converse of that, you can be black. You don't even have to be a troublemaker. You can be exceptional Mm. and the doors are Mm. still closed. And just Mm. for this, like, I mean, oh, the other word she used, anachronism, which she said off the radar. That is one of our special ones. Anywho, uh, just, I mean, I'd forgotten that, oh, yeah, they had already made the rules. We're not supposed to be competing with you, Negras or any other colonists, like no iron making. Ah, so this is tech. I'd say contraband. Technically, this is against the rules. All you mm, have to do mm. is just go remind. Hey, they're breaking the law. Oh yes, yes. And and when you do go put in martial law, bring the equipment here. Like what in the world? <laughs> like that is crazy. Like why? I mean, it's equally crazy that no experiments. No evidence that this guy has any history with Iron Will. Like, where did he all of a sudden get the technology and know how to do all of this? 
I've kind of seen that before too with the white people. So I'm not that surprised on that one. But I mean, wow, you can get your friends to declare martial law so you can go. I mean, that is there's looting and then there's looting. Like, wow. I mean, whew. What is this widely known? Like you said, when you it was five years of research. So is this something where people kind of knew Henry Cord is, you know, this guy is not some metallurgist. Uh, he's just a looter and a liar. Did people know that or were they just playing along? Um, so, I mean, the, the theft of the black metallurgist innovation, uh, this particular innovation is, is a new finding um, published in the latest issue of the journal History and Technology. But, um, I mean, academic communities, and in, and in particular Jamaican and Caribbean scholars, They've known for decades that thefts of intellectual property like this took place all the time. And they have shown time and time again that slavery, indenture, colonialism and racial capitalism in general were based on the theft of skills and knowledge. The theft of intellectual property, not just labor and resources. This is about black intellect. It's not just about cotton and sugar. It's about knowledge about science and skills. So when Caribbean scholars say they already know this story, they do. They've always known it. And what this paper does is just expose the specifics of one case among countless others. You know, for every, for every individual a theft of skills and knowledge. How many millions? Billions. Who knows? Trillions. I mean, yeah. Oof. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, four hundred years. Yeah. Who knows? I'm just pointing this out as well. The other pattern they will consistently. This guy, she said he stole from the Navy. Unless I went misinformed. Like, wait a minute. Time out. Time out. <laughs> you can't be a liar and you're a looter and you're not even good at business. She said he was about to be bankrupt before he went and stole all this stuff. Um, you're not even good at what you do. Same thing. You got all these advantages and your nepotism and all of this, and you're still lame. And then you're stealing from the Navy, and you still get to get your pension and ride out with a good name, and people think of you as a national hero. Like, are you serious? Seeing that as a major pattern, which you, you can be a white person and be a criminal. Ah, all is forgiven. <laughs> what? What? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stephen Lawrence wasn't even a criminal, and they go and deface his monument all the time. Like, my head hurts. Let's see. Uh, we had a few folks that had a question. Let's see. Uh, our caller at 9029, did you have a question? Uh, our guest joining us live from the UK, Dr. Jenny Bolstrode, uh, caller 9029, did you have a question? Uh, greetings, uh, guests, greetings, callers, and listeners, and Dr. Bostro. Hope I pronounced your name properly there. Um, article, very interesting. I, I am of Jamaican background, and my family is descendants of Maroons, my family of lineage. The, the, the question I wanted to ask was in regards to knowledge and intellect, which you said this is an intellectual theft at, at its core as well. Books like um, like Guns, Germs, and Steel, which I read a long time ago, do you consider books like that propaganda 
in a sense, of white supremacy, because in turn, it, it kind of does the opposite of what your paper basically does and other papers that are honest about what actually transpired. So I was just curious about that. That's one of my first questions. Yeah, I think I think that's a really it's a really interesting question. Thank you. I, I think that I mean I, I suppose I feel that historians are always, you know, we we've all got our own agenda um and that we're trying to push and very often that's maybe a, a book or something like that that we want to promote and that has this odd effect on the scholarship that you end up kind of pushing a line of argument to so that it becomes total. Right. And that's a very totalizing argument. It's like the, the inevitability of certain technology. I and mean, in my field, we call it technological determinism. The power of these technologies determine um, a certain domination. Um, that's it's generally considered um, to be actually quite technological determinism is quite a weak argument. Social context always matters. What people are doing always matters. The agency of people always matters. So it's, 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 it's not, it's, it's, uh, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it is a form of propaganda in a sense. It's a, it's a form of propaganda for the, for the historian's book in a way. In a way. Um, but, uh, I also think that part of what, you know, what I'm writing about is trying to get at is that the power of that technology didn't come from, one set of people it came from the exchange of ideas but very often the theft of ideas and the theft of skills um and you know it's it, part of what i'm um concerned with is is the the like narrative of who innovates technology who creates there are powerful tools in the world who creates those powerful tools where do they come from because at the moment um, it seems to me that one of the dominant images is a kind of Elon Musk style character. But that's not what the historical record tells us. The historical record tells us time and time again, it was the people doing the work. And overwhelmingly, the history of racial capitalism is black people doing that work, black people innovating, black people's skills and knowledges. So, yeah, I think it maybe wasn't I don't, I don't know. I can't say whether it was intended as that, but I think that unthinkingly, un, unknowingly, it it has become that. Yeah, I would agree. Um, thank thank you for that answer. Also, I wanted to ask you in regards to subjects because you spoke about Florida and some of the things when you kind of spoke about that uh, lightly. Um, they also, you know, they're in ban the process of banning critical race theory. I'm asking this because I wanted to know, is the same process happening in the UK? Is there sort of a pushback against the overwhelming knowledge of racism and how it played a role within Europe's development, um, especially with the Windrush group that's going on? Um, I also have a grandmother that was actually a part of that Windrush group, and she, she left Jamaica and um, left my father there so that she could earn, obviously, while she was in Europe. Um, luckily, she was able to get, you know, citizenship and all that other stuff. But is there a pushback also in, in Europe against this, this knowledge even coming to the table? So I, I think that, you know, I, I, there, is, there is huge important scholarship going on, in particular by black scholars. 
but for all the reasons that we've been talking about, uh, that their scholarship does not get the platform. Um, but you know, the, I'm an early career scholar, but some even the kind of platform that that I get, um, that that kind of suppression of that knowledge is is um, absolutely consistent. And in in the UK, we had the the Sewell report, which which claimed that Britain was not institutionally racist. This is, this is Britain we're talking about. And even the Royal Society, that's wow. about as, as highly conventional as you get. Even the Royal Society acknowledges that the uh, science, technology, engineering and medicine in Britain is institutionally racist. But our government won't. So, yes, there is absolutely suppression. Um, but yes, this scholarship also is happening. It's being pioneered in particular by black scholars against against this resistance. And I was talking to someone the other day um, about um, they were they were talking about a friend they had who'd written a paper also about a kind of black pioneer. And they were saying it had taken them 10 years to get it out. That review process, everything, you know, everything has to be done to a higher standard. And even then, you know, even then you're likely to have the door shut on you. So, yes, absolutely. There is suppression, but I don't want to I, I don't want to discount the huge amount of work that is also being done. Right. Right. Thank you for that. As well. I'll just say this is the last thing, I, because I, this reason why the, your article struck I Sorry. think I might have lost um, you. Sorry, do you mind hello? saying again? I, I think I I think yeah. I lost you for a bit there. I was just going to say the the large majority of of black males in my family are iron workers from Jamaica. I just wanted to say that because so I find the that's why I found the article so interesting. Oh, thank you for your time, Andrew. No, thank you. I thank you for your questions. Thank you. That's fant that's fantastic. My finger slipped. My apologies, sir. Uh, our caller at zero three five six. Did you have a question for Dr. Jenny Bulstrode? Zero three five six. Did you have a question? Zero three. Five six. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, greetings, Gus. Um, greetings to the callers and listeners. Thank you, Dr. Bolstro. Uh, very, very important information. Um, um, I have some questions for you. Um, first, um, in your research, did you come across anything that related um, the way that these Africans were able to manipulate? iron and metalworking with their what would be called spirituality uh it, how how the the african smiths on on the continent in africa or in in jamaica is this in in jamaica and as well in the americas you're mentioning as well especially how you're speaking of the akan people in particular was there any information relating their wisdom of, of metalworking with their spirituality. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so there, there are accounts of um, of metalworking being used as as medicine, um, what are called mesmerism. So one of the things to um, uh, we talked about earlier in the in this kind of conversation, we talked about Tacky's Revolt and Vincent Brown's fantastic book on on Tacky's Revolt. Um, following Tacky's revolt as a way of suppressing future kind of uprisings and resistance fighters, the British made it illegal um, certain practices under the name of of Obeya. Um, and uh, this uh, Obeya, which is kind of um, a process of you know material techniques that draw on spiritual agents, very often you know engage with the the duppies that pop the island. Um, and and kind of bring them to your to your purpose. Um, they this then became known among the among the Black Jamaican communities and the Maroon communities. Uh, they called it science, and they called this this practice of working metal uh, um, as a as as kind of a healing process, as a spiritual process. Um, they called it mesmerism, um, and these were these are ways of, of taking. British colonizer terms and using them for their own purposes. So when I talk about science here and mesmerism, I'm talking about um, black Jamaican practices um, with these with these metals. But also, um, you see the same in you see the same in uh, South America um, among black communities uh, using metal for um, iron working for healing practices for ritual purposes. Um, no, I, absolutely and. Um, different among different groups so that you know the windward maroons do different things to the leeward maroons they have different traditions um we talked about the adawo earlier this this instrument you can play by by working um a nail together with a machete or any piece of scrap iron with a machete you can get the iron or a skilled practitioner i couldn't but a skilled practitioner can can get the iron to speak in in what the Cremanti tradition calls a pan-African language, um, and this is used to speak the the old country histories, the uh, the old oral histories, the real sacred histories. So iron is is part of how you express sacred spiritual knowledge, um, as well as how part of how you um, kind of activate that knowledge to intervene in the world. Thank you very much for your answer. Um, okay, with that information, and I heard you um, mention earlier, uh, well, well, with Tacky's Revenge in particular, um, I'm very aware about that. Um, you had mentioned how once, um, well, actually, I'm sorry, you didn't just mention it. But either way, do you think that um, these same people being indoctrinated and forced to accept Jesus Christ is while why they lost this science and why they were under Um, I didn't I didn't quite catch all of that. Um Was it do you think them being indoctrinated with Jesus Christ is why they lost the information, these method methods that they had? Is that was that the question or did I not hear it? Yes, sir. Yes, he said yes. Um, do you know, I, I don't, I, I, do you know, I think you have to speak, I, I, I don't think I'd be in a position to say whether people were ever 
indoctrinated or not. I think people kept their own practices. They kept their own skills just because, you know, we talked about off radar. Just because it goes off radar doesn't mean it's not there. Um, and these, you know, these, like I said, they were finding strategies to, to maintain their practices, their traditions, to develop new um, new traditions uh, that that couldn't be suppressed by the by the British. And Obeo is still criminal in Jamaica today. Um, it's still called science today because it's it's uh, it's very much kind of stamped down upon. So um, yeah, I, I don't I don't know I don't know. I mean I think it's I think so much is um, I want to be careful because so much is projected onto black people and black people's heritage kind of spoken about them and I feel like it's 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 not my place to but also I don't have I don't have the knowledge or the the you know the the community connections that I think that what I can do is is talk about what I find in shipping reports and what I find in the in the correspondence about the foundry and and uh you know knowing uh, uh that that quasi did this for his own reasons not for British reasons knowing that his baptism his baptism takes place on on christmas day um it's significant it's the day of junkanoo it's the day in which basically the order of the the world is turned upside down and the the carnival and uh the the science man who leads the carnival um is 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 ridden by the spirit um, leads the carnival on the, and the, through the procession, and quality takes that role. So one of the things I want to get at in the paper is the understanding why he's baptized within a very narrow Christian tradition, rather than either a, a kind of multi-faith tradition or a syncretized faith tradition, or um, or within actually a not Christian tradition at all. Um, is is the wrong way of getting at this? That you have to put this back into um, the framework of um, African and Jamaican heritages and understand Kwasi's actions within the framework of the Cremanti tradition to which he belongs. Um, but I don't, I, I, I feel I would be speaking outside of my place to, to kind of extend further than that. Um, yeah, sorry. Well, that's okay. Thank you, thank you for your time. I just have one last question, if you don't mind, just real quick. Um, do you think that this running trope that is used by suspected racist white supremacists about Africans and black people in general being ignorant, um, we came from nothing and we didn't have anything until white people got there, do you think that can be used in places like on the continent now when we hear people say, well, you all don't know how to use the resources to work, this is why we're here helping you? Do you think that aids that type of safety? And I'm going to thank you for your time and thanks a lot for taking my call. No, thank you. Thanks for questions. If, if I've understood your question correctly, I mean, is this is this narrative still happening today? That that, that you know everything that somehow uh, white supremacy is a is a gift um, that people should be thankful for. I, I think this is absolutely the case today. And God, you get explicit statements like this from the UK government. We've just seen it from the government in Florida. Um, it, it's I but I also think you know more broadly than that. I mean, I I'm my background before history of sciences in the natural sciences um you, you look at development studies you look at um the way the sciences treat the rest of the world this kind of parachute science system um that everyone else is supposed to be grateful for those for those interventions it's, uh i 
I think it's absolutely the case now. It's, it's absolutely ubiquitous. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted that. Um, <laughs> Gus has talked about footnote three in the paper that, that lists um, just some of the scholarship on stolen black innovations that have been credited, often credited to white individuals and institutions. And in there is stuff like, um, you know, the, the management of sleeping sickness, how to control sleeping sickness. These are techniques, um, the, the tetsi fly and the, the spread of sleeping sickness. These are techniques that are used today. They are used today and they are credited to white institutions. They are still considered the best way of managing this disease. And they, and the white institutions act like they read, they, they discovered it. When these were, these were, uh, black leaders actually working out ways to keep their populations healthy, to keep their people healthy. Um, it's, it's this, this theft of ideas over and over again. And I, I absolutely think it continues today. Much obliged. Our caller, 0356, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Hey, Florida. Did you have a question for? Dr. Jenny Bolstrode, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, to the uh, doctor, uh, do you think that uh, black people, uh, experts of metals, assisted the uh, empire, the British empire, uh, to develop its uh Huge and powerful shipping. Uh, I'm talking about Navy, uh, merchant, as well as cruising vessels with iron uh, and absolutely. steel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this, this innovation, this stolen innovation, I mean, you know, assisted is a difficult term here, right? Because this is a stolen innovation, but this stolen innovation is considered the biggest breakthrough in iron ship manufacture in the 19th century. So I, I, I think I mentioned earlier that, that Brunel's Great Eastern, that iconic giant iron ship that was, that was made using this process. And I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's worth saying within a year of court's 1783 patent, that's, that's the stolen innovation, the patent of the stolen innovation. British MPs were saying that this innovation was more profitable than 13 colonies. Within a few decades, British newspapers were thanking court for making British manufacturers millionaires. The Royal Society announced modern civilization is due to cheap wrought iron, and we owe cheap wrought iron to Henry Court. Now, what this, this research shows is if we turn it to Henry Court, we owe it to these 76 black metallurgists. But absolutely, steamships is one of the most significant uh, uh, applications of um, of this iron technology. Yes, ma'am. Uh, my next and last question, I don't, and I don't want to get you in trouble, ma'am, but uh, do you think <laughs> that uh, these stolen artifacts uh, made of metal, I guess, uh, maybe some uh, shiny rocks uh, uh, was showed off uh, a couple of months ago at the coronation and at the funeral of the king's mother. 
Oh gosh, uh, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big follower of the, of the royal family, so I don't know the specifics of what was shown off. But I think, you know, no doubt. I mean, let's let's be serious here. The the wealth that was on display there, we all know where that wealth came from. Um, so yeah, no doubt, mm. no doubt. And this is this is, um, you know. Every gold curly bit on every carriage, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm sure that there were there were stolen jewels. I'm, I'm sure there were, but uh, on display. Um, but I'm also sure that the just the very wealth of that um, that event, that in, institution, that that procession, um, yeah, everything about it. Okay, thank you for the answers, and I probably just ruined my chances to ever visit England. But thank you. To, to, <laughs> I think I think you should definitely visit England. <laughs> he, he was not welcome beforehand. Uh, he is with the uh, Opalaka <laughs> Three terrorist organization in South Florida. So no, definitely, his passport has already been revoked. Um, I'm I'm just so impressed. Like you said, the the court theft of from these black metallurgists, uh, the seventy six. That 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 is all you. Brand new research. That part was not known before. Is that correct? Henry Court theft of the innovation. No, no, that was that was my finding. But it did take five years to get out. Was that COVID nineteen? Why it took so long? Like delays in getting research and getting things done? Or? Oh no, no, it was. Um, no, I mean, listen. I don't want uh, you know. This is not this is not my stop story. But it had it had uh, two journal rejections. Uh, one reviewer wrote me a sixteen page letter saying I should be ashamed of myself wow. calling myself a historian. <laughs> wow! And and there was there was some extraordinary extraordinary ignorance about about African mythology. It was quite remarkable. I mean, yeah. So yes. yeah, no, it was it was a, it was a slow process. Yeah, <laughs> that that's I'm always suspicious suspicious when it's resistance to anything related to this sort of content, and it's resistance from a white person, and that gets labeled ignorance. I suspect if you had done this and you had found, let's say, some Scandinavians. And they had mm. this amazing uh, alchemy with iron that we just didn't know about before. And in fact, Henry Court stole it from these Scandinavians. Do you think it would have taken this long to get all of it? Do you think you would have got that 16-page letter, Scandinavians, not Africans? No, for, for, for sure. And, and also, I mean, the other thing is you can write that Henry Court was this brilliant inventor and genius. And like as other historians have written, one of the top 10 macro inventors of the modern world that's their phrase not mine you don't need to put any evidence to say that you can just say that and people nod because there's this pile of documentary evidence that was made after the patent there is no evidence before there is reams and reams and reams of paper and books and books and books saying what a hero he is all after nothing before so you can make those statements about this guy who was a thief and there's no evidence of him ever having done any experimental work or anything like that to develop this. And you don't have to substantiate it. But if you want to say something else, 
um, about something that we know. You know, the, the academic community know that these thefts happened all the time, that this is what the, the wealth and prosperity of white Europe and white North America was built on. We, we know that it was built on these thefts. So that's supposed to be the, the standard of knowledge. But if you want to say that, you have to fight so much harder. And you have to, one of the things you'll see in, in that paper is that there's very little actually relatively secondary literature. It's mostly primary evidence because the only way to get through the review process in the end was to go back to the sources on every point and say, no, look, this is the evidence. Um, yeah. Stunning. Wow. I've, I've heard this before as well with Harriet A. Washington. In fact, I've heard this with some scholarship and research that I think is extraordinary. Harriet A. Washington, medical apartheid. She said the exact same thing. She faced mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. resistance from white people. Resistance. Mm-hmm. You should be ashamed of yourself. What is wrong with you going out here trying to badmouth Henry Cordley? Yeah. Like, is he your cousin? Is he your relative? Like, <laughs> are you 16 pages? Do you have you got any other uh, I don't know what you call that rejection or what have you. It's not going to work out letters that were 16 pages in length. Uh, what with 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 this work, any um, work I had work. The, with any. Oh, no, with any other work. No, absolutely not. No, I, I never had this. I never had this experience in my life. <laughs> I I, I yeah. cried and I cried and I cried for, for you know, it. it, it yeah. Um, I, to be honest, one of the one of the things that kind of pushed me back to it and to actually finish it was I I, I had been working in uh, I trained at the University of Cambridge. I worked at the University of Cambridge, and it's basically a, a white and very posh institution. And then I got a job at University College London, and I was suddenly working with black students, and I was appalled at what we were what we had to show them. You know, even the imagery. Oh my God, I, I will not. I, I will not show images of enslaved people because they are just denigratory. You know, there there are artworks by black artists uh, done in modern times. There's an amazing series, Jacob Lawrence's Silk Prints of the Haitian Revolution. I don't know if you know those. They are stunning. I use those. I use the material culture. These objects. That stolen and and then now kind of hidden in the British Museum I, I show us anti source but I, I it was just kind of um, yeah I wasn't happy with what I had to, to offer actually um, so that was part of the motivation I guess and and just you know this this innovation lie I feel like there's this lie around who's an innovator who has skill and knowledge where that comes from there's this there's this picture of of a kind of person, and it's just not true. Um, so yeah. Wow, stunning, stunning. Uh, wow, that feel like you could be talking about Detroit or Oakland. We just have poor images to show the children. Everything is the hate you give and. The hip hop and oh, it's awful or slavery. It's just terrible and shackles and precious. The same thing. Yes, yeah. It is not just. Sh- hey, 
Queen Mother Adia. Ah, yeah. So beautiful. And, and the, I mean, there's a, the Pan-African Heritage Museum. I know that they are working, you know, with, with kind of AI innovators to develop sort of, they, I think they want to like develop imagery around the foundry and things like that, how it might have actually been and do this in a sort of respectful way that actually acknowledges these black heritages so that there is this imagery. Because you, you need these images. You need this representation. There, there must be that representation, but it's just finding the right way to right way to do it that, that doesn't feed into this this uh, systematic denigration. Um, yeah. Well, I learned a ton. Wow! Uh, even just the pictures alone, like you should definitely get the uh, full report. It's available online. Uh, Black metallurgists and the making of the industrial revolution uh you should definitely read it the foot footnote number three uh but just if you look at the pictures man like it is stunning like she the some of the bundles uh of the iron like the sugar cane sheath that she talked about and uh queen mother idea it's just it's stunning uh just if you look at the pictures and then read the actual information this is this is the total refutation in every way to so many of the lodges through and through lie all of that meritocracy oh they have talked about the affirmative action hard work are you serious henry court that's hard work really hmm. wow i learned so much uh our guest dr jenny bolstrode uh we will definitely keep an eye out for uh future scott in fact this is supposed to be part one her colleague uh, she's done such a job of promoting and, and saying the importance uh, of non-white scholars and black people who had already done this work. Uh, Henry Beckles said I had referenced his work before. You should get his report on black people, diabetes, and white supremacy. It is stunning. It's short, too. You don't have to take, like, the whole summer to read it. Well, uh, your colleague, again, you sent me her email. I'm going to contact her and send her our discussion so she'll know who she's talking to, see if we can get her on to connect this to why this is connected to reparations your colleague's name again for us yeah dr sheree warmington she's she's a jamaican expert in development and reparations Mm. imagine if she had tried to publish your report it would not have taken five years she might have been deported jailed beaten (laughs) fired like all kinds of things like uh Sheree and I talk about this a lot. Oh, man, I can't wait to (laughs) ask her. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's amazing. She's amazing. We will ch- I will send her this so she'll know what our format and such is, but there should be part two to have her on the program. So to be continued, uh, thank you so much for uh, the great work sharing some of it for you Sunday evening with us so we could get all of our questions in uh, just really spe- as soon as I heard it on the BBC I was stunned uh, all the way on the other side of the world I thought that was so important I'm so thankful we could get some of your time and uh, insight on the program Dr. Bolstrode. Uh thank you so much for having me Gus it's an absolute privilege thank you so much and, and thank you to your callers for their, for their fantastic questions just a real privilege thank you we enjoyed it. Keep up the great scholarship, and uh, we will stay tuned, see what you publish. Hopefully it won't take five years for your next uh, report to come out. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. <laughs> okay. Right on. Enjoy your Sunday evening, right. Dr. Bolstrode. Okay, I will. You too. Thank you again. Bye thank, now. Thank you. Evening, evening.
Wow. Context of white supremacy. Let me make sure I get on the record. It was such a tussle for this program. I said yesterday, man, I hate these programs when it's early in the morning. For me, where it's not even morning now, it's two, let's see, 2.09 and 26 seconds Pacific Daylight Saving Time for Gus T. Man, I hate these early programs. Our normal program time is 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Now, we can't do that when we have guests like Dr. Bolstrode on the program. She said to call her Jenny. <laughs> Dr. Bolstrode the whole time. Oh, well. Um, Dr. Bolstrode, uh, because it would be, let me see, for five for me, it would be one o'clock in the morning. We have some of our guests when they call in for like neutralizing workplace racism or what have you, or just callers, listeners, and they dial in. It is like something crazy. One, two o'clock in the morning. That's why I'm always stunned when they dial in to share. That's why we can't really get a guest to hang out with us uh, for that time. So I make my sacrifice. We come in early, but oh my God, it was every sort of obstacle. Like literally, I couldn't even get the switchboard page to load today. You all being able to get questions in the switchboard came back. I think about 90 minutes into the program, I got the switchboard back, but just it being on, I figured out how to do all of the features like to get the line open and to get people muted and all of that. So you could dial in and hear everything. I got everything except the audio uh, introduction that I had done to set up the program, but ended up not even being needed because she, we knocked down everything. I was just going to play the introduction uh, of what we heard. If you uh, heard us on the compensatory call in maybe three weeks ago, I played the segment where she was on the BBC, Dr. Uh, Bolstrode, and uh, I used Minister Farrakhan. He, years ago, she kept emphasizing, I thought that was important too, that so many black people had said this, that we were not idiots and buffoons. These were really intelligent. Now this, man, when they talk about Benjamin Banneker, the almanac's super important. That's intellectual property too. Weather patterns, your crops, all that. Hey, heat wave and all of that. Knowing the weather is important. No discarding at all. Those almanacs are super important. But when they talk about he designed the city and there's all that resistance, not it's not a city, designed the District of Columbia, Washington. This is one to think about. It doesn't, it's not causation, but ooh-wee. Ooh-wee. They're just talking about they had a factory in Jamaica. They're not saying, you know, designed the capital city of the most powerful white nation in the world. That's just something to think about, but Anyway, it was so difficult. It was like just piles of difficulty. Like, oh my God. Even we got disconnected briefly. I guess that happens all the time. So that was that was the least of the difficulties. But like I said, the switchboard, it wouldn't even load. Be not discouraged. Dr. Welsing, she said, be not discouraged. One, I'm really glad. I say be early. It's uh if you can't be early, be on time. Whew. I'm glad that was it today. I'm glad I did not because I had actually read and highlighted her report uh, yesterday. Right. So I could have loafed. Right. And said, you know, eh, I don't like these early programs. I'm going to sleep in late. It's my Sunday. I'm going to sleep in late till, you know, I don't know, 1030 or something. And then we'll get up and do the program at 12. No. 
up early, ready to roll, and then all of the oh no, the switchboard didn't work. Other every other kind of goofy problem uh, that you can imagine. But man, I'm so glad we were able to persevere, get her on the program. I thought uh, she had a lot of accurate information uh, for us to think. If anything try to learn something about everything I had not learned anything about metallurgy and uh, factories and the history of all that I don't know anything about that learn everything relates back to white supremacy racism anyway I'd never heard of Henry Court either I've been to Jamaica and didn't know about uh, Three Finger Jack they said he's a national hero like man wish I had known that before because then it would have been I would have asked as many people as possible to see what do they know about him take me to some sites let's go see I did sightseeing when I was there but man let's go see what's three finger jack let's go see and then they could tell me some stories while we're going to go look out or go to the library see what books they have or whatever else on three finger jack but yeah, learn something about everything I think that also is how we go about solving this problem because apparently we were not idiots and buffoons before. I do not conceive of universal man, universal woman just being kind of dolts who sit around and play video games and watch TV all day long. Although I guess they could, but I kind of think of them as folks who, wow, these are impressive people. Universal woman, no 15 languages made two languages you know that's kind of what I think of universal I'll say all the time got a spaceship that's what I think leaving the galaxy that's what I think scientific discoveries you know I'm an architect in my spare time design buildings when I have a free moment you know that's what I think universal woman universal man I don't know how you conceive of all that seems like that's what racists not only that's not what they want us to be that's why they got what they call it the tackiness uh, school to prison pipeline I just sent someone they asked if we talked about uh, racism in the schools I was almost offended like hey we talk about that almost every program we talked about child Q remember that last year that's in the UK black female where they searched her uh, sanitary napkin because smelled like cannabis that's across the pond in the UK that's not here in the USA although we talked about it it might as well be same thing niggers is niggers all over the world same thing but that was last year anywho uh, so important learn a little bit about everything they do not want us to be scholars super informed curious but that's not what they want that's not what they want they want us watching screens Netflix that's what they want anywho I will say also watch and or read pick some form of news medium and regularly check the news because that's how we had this program today listening to the BBC news and that's also Dr. Frances Cress Welsing she talked about that all the time man checking the news and she did that she didn't just talk about that I'm telling you I would call Dr. Welsing at her residence you could hear the TV now when you call was she listening to Juice she listening to BT Nelly 
party time, sitcoms even, you know, Harry Potter, <laughs> whatever, anime, who knows? No, every time, and I mean every time I called Dr. Welsing, if the television was on or she said the television was on, she was watching something, it was the news. Now, it might be France 24, it might be CNN, whatever, but it would be some form of news. Banneker City, Washington, D.C. Anyway, uh, that's how I found out about the program. I try to listen to the BBC on a regular basis. People who listen to the compensatory call-in, I play segments from the BBC pretty much weekly. Not every single week, but it's on a regular basis. I play segments from the BBC. They're talking about racism around the world. That was one that I played just recently within the last 30 days check it like find some source if it's your local definitely got to check locally but try to pay attention to the news locally nationally globally that's why we have the compensatory call in weekly basis that's why we try to include news information from around the world because everything relates back to racism white supremacy we'll be here tomorrow back to our normal time thank god 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific white guests only environmental racism important topic as well one that man i remember the days when we had an f in that subject matter that is not the case anymore has not been for a while but always more to learn but we'll revisit environmental racism for tomorrow 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m Pacific. Uh, any of our folks who are with us, thoughts that they wanted to share what they heard from Dr. Jenny Bolster, or I guess I'll, I'll phrase it this way, the folks uh, content that they heard uh, does this information, how do you think this relates to uh, our effort to replace white supremacy with justice, uh, what we heard from Dr. Bolster uh, or is this just, you know wasting time, twiddling our thumbs on the slave ship Anything that we can take, use from this to, to solve our problems? What do we think? May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yeah, I think um, one of the important aspects that she mentioned was a couple of, well, actually, I think it was two phrases. Let me just take a quick look. I had to write this down. It was industrial espionage and intellectual black thought. I think those two things come come into play heavily because they they tend to these are words that are going to be necessary for us to use in describing what exactly has been occurring to us for the past hundred years. Therefore, kind of giving us a vocabulary, so to speak, instead of using the wrong words that won't won't give proper definitions. I think they're really good phrases that she she um basically introduced to us because I haven't really heard of well the intellectual black theft I've heard, but I, I think in this context in industrial espionage is really a good one and kind of another way of saying colonialism, you know, basically going around and raping and killing and taking whatever you want. I think that was really important. And that that's the aspect that I got from it that could sort of bring some clarity to what really is going on. And I think that's important. I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Our caller, he said, I think uh, he had the 
connection to the Maroons in Jamaica uh, and other family members uh, connected with that. Uh, the Windrush generation, I was going to mention that early on the program. We've talked about that before. I even when she talked about the use of the iron uh, to making the iron speak, if you're skilled enough and using that to send uh, messages, she even uh, talks about that in her paper and, and being used to heal. I have a singing bowl that is very close to the same concept and I mean, wow, people have been using that for years, but that's the same thing, getting a resonance. And I mean, that has an impact, like, you know, depending on how, what size it is and the frequency of the resonance, you can literally, you can feel the vibration in your body. Like that is something I have experienced and people have been doing that for centuries for a reason. That might even be one that they've been doing it for thousands of years for a reason. If you have not experienced that, wow, just go to, uh, you can do, I mean, you can do it. I have a, you can go get a singing bowl. You can get a singing bowl and just sit and feel it, ding it. And especially if you get a larger one and just sit there, especially if you turn off all the television, you don't have all that electromagnetic smog and just sit, ding it. Especially if you're holding it, you put it in your hand, sit it on your body and just let those vibrations like whoa it is really powerful resonance yeah that that point resonated uh, with me but yes that is long tradition uh, any other uh, thoughts folks wanted to share from Dr. Jenny Bolstrode uh, our guest for today how they would apply even what she shared to our effort to replace white supremacy with justice Yes. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, with the with the development of understanding racism, white supremacy, what it is and how it works, uh, at the same time, we can, uh, th this program is helpful from the standpoint of understanding that uh, we have the capability of rebooting our brain and developing an understanding of of uh, materials and how to best use them, uh, and uh, you know, replace world with uh, a system of justice. It's a possibility that we can do that when our attention is is geared towards it, as opposed to some of the other things that we. Uh, put our attention to, which is not, which is not, uh, healthy, uh, uh, you know, as opposed to there was a contingency of non-white black people who had a level of expertise on the sciences and what to do with materials that are on the planet earth in a constructive manner. So if it happened before it can, it can happen again. Is what I'm saying. Uh, what, is the main obstacle obstacle in the way is the global system of racist white supremacy. And uh, by putting our concentration on dismantling that and replacing it with something better, uh, programs like this can uh, basically uh, be helpful to have understanding that there were some expert non-white people. That's it.
much obliged. Dr. Welsing talked about that all the time, the importance of remembering that. Uh, I said I was going to play that at the intro, Louis Farrakhan saying the same thing, uh, that we were not buffoons and clowns. Uh, these are people that built the pyramids, that legacy that we can solve this problem, get our brain computers focused in a constructive manner to solve this here problem. Uh, and in fact, if I'd had, well, wouldn't have mattered anyway, apparently, <clears throat> because the switchboard was not working. But if I'd had more time, wasn't an early broadcast, I would have attempted to locate the audio of Mr. Fuller talking about the meaning of his name Neely and saying that that means shaper of iron because he was complaining saying it's not even much of a name um, but <clears throat> excuse me but he said uh, that it means shaper of iron and he said well you know I can take that that means you know shaping black people to think constructively I can take that I said hey that apply right here what we're talking about getting us to think more uh, constructively um, also with it hey now one she did classify as white said hey I do participate in practice white supremacy racism she didn't even say privilege she said participate in practice that notwithstanding um, she also emphasized a lot of non-white people that have done this work uh, with did not get on BBC immediately after they published uh, their work but she uh, emphasized that I think that is important as well very difficult for non-white scholars even though we do have a white guest only policy for many many reasons um, but yeah I do think it is important uh, just to be informed uh, to combat that because I think that lie it impacts our own brain computer and how we think about ourselves uh, because if we have a long tradition heritage of being idiots and clowns well that's what I should aspire to as well entertainment committee well that's not the case at all like man I mean this is not you know the only and or first like I said I'm sure Minister Farrakhan did not read this this report to come to that conclusion and he was saying that 30 years ago so uh, but so important I think to have specific details information to refute that share that and even the pictures like I said it's like wow they made this centuries ago I could like I said I could make this now <laughs> it's got like bronze and what in the eyes and everything like it is amazing like and again so white people you say that we're dumb and ignorant and all that and you gotta be alpine nordic white to be beautiful why you got all these sculptures of the black people in the museum no less you didn't even hide it in the attic you put it in the museum charge people a whole lot of money don't even let us go see it what does it mean to be white anyway there's probably some other applications as well again I'm not you know on the reparations I'm for replacing white supremacy with justice if we do the reparations and we still got a system of white supremacy we have to come and do reparations every 25 years every 50 years like I just replace white supremacy with justice anyway uh, I guess if you are into all of that this would certainly figure into that like wow what type of bill are we even talking about uh, any other thoughts observations uh, folks want to make sure they share what they heard have you heard yes sir 
Um, thank you, Gus. Uh, very, very informative book. I was waiting for this um, when you first mentioned it uh, last week. Um, first and foremost, um, from studying information like this, for me personally, I was able to get a better understanding of the discussion of Area 7. And uh, actually, the, uh, this type of information is actually what led me to counter racist science. Um, I think the most important thing that she talked about was how um, in the past uh, these groups were able to work together. Um, the system versus white supremacy makes sure that non-white people, especially black people, are always in constant conflict and cannot um, not saying that unity will end racist white supremacy, but they always want to keep us um, being in conflict so that we cannot be able to form things constructively, um, have different groups who work on different projects, you know, outside of, you know, what they call crime. Um, the use of just metal um, down in the areas that she was speaking about um, was very important um, to the people at that time. Um, Thomas DeFuller talked about his name. His name, you know, means metal worker. There's a lot of names that mean that um, where you come from, I guess you say that bloodline metal workers, you know, so right away, you know, oh, a child born on this day. You know, if you spoke of certain names, you know, Kofi, I think Abana was spoken of. Actually, Abana is Tuesday, and Tuesday has to do with metal working. So I found that really, really interesting and actually accurate. Um, thank you for your program, sir, and um, I'm you out. That is much obliged, sir. That, I thought, was one of the important point, points uh, in the report repeatedly uh, in there keeping us in conflict with each other instigating it support everybody in the conflict give them weapons to amp it up do the same types of things right up to this day 2023 uh, but still very effective part of the reason that I think so much of Mr. Fuller's code 10 stops all of that is centered around minimizing conflict with other non-white people if we don't agree uh, they have different counter-racist philosophies have different world philosophies all of that is fine we are not in conflict really making that a central point because white all the time they benefit from that in so many ways um yeah that we can uh there's a tradition of us being much more cooperative uh towards solving this problem minimize conflict that's got to be a part of it minimize conflict let's see um yeah i hope i didn't say too much hello, <laughs> hello Gus. yes sir yeah i just um I wanted to share this as, as far as family lineage go. I just found it interesting, but I wanted to speak to the, the professor about it. Um, my grandfather was a, was an iron worker as well, and he went to the Panama Canal from Jamaica, worked on the Panama Canal, which many Jamaicans did, and then came back and had more skills, obviously, after working there, and then proceeded to open like a business. And this was something that happened throughout Jamaica. And I, I had no idea. I thought it was initially from people working at the Panama Canal. I didn't know historically that it was already, the skill set was already there in Jamaica before they even went to the canal. 
which there were many, of course, I'm sure everybody knows, non-white people that worked on that canal. Um, and then the rest of my uncles um, ended up being all iron workers as well. Like, it's it very, it's just a, a very telling thing. I'm going to share it with some of the rest of my family and see what they say. I, I don't think they even know, to be quite frank. So, um, yeah, appreciate the show. Appreciate the show. Great information. I would encourage folks, if you, you know, are interested, get the report so that you can see some of the images uh, that she has included, the statues and different figures and, and such. Uh, all of that is it's, it would really make uh, an impact, uh, I think. And yes, being able to connect some of the uh, dots in terms of, of how we see all of this and yeah, apparently the skill skills being here for centuries. Uh, I think all of that is uh, really important. Just changing that narrative from seeing us as being dumb and ignorant and unintelligent uh, to no. And in fact, white people have lied. And in fact, they are the ones you have all of these advantages and the networks and everything. And you still are mediocre, lame and a bankrupt business person like, wow. <laughs> Uh, meritocracy that's what they say meritocracy hmm. anywho uh, listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com paypal button in the top right corner you'll also see the links for cash app venmo and paypal the cash app address cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows much obliged to all the folks who have invested kept us on the air 14 plus years we'll be here tomorrow back to our normal broadcast time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific that would be Monday July 24 looking forward to that one as well environmental racism uh, protect protecting they attack they do they dump all of these chemicals and such in the air soil water all of the above sometimes uh, where it impacts our brain computer Harry A. Washington the Great I wrote about that as well in A Terrible Thing to Waste again it's you set all of this up so that we cannot think at a high level have us watching stupid TV so that we're just like the entertainment committee that's our greatest aspiration telling goofy jokes listening to goofy songs low level thinking whole environment is set up for that even the cell phones and everything low attention span everything is set up in that manner that also hey working to be great thinkers so that we can solve the greatest problem in the known universe same people who were stealing and terrorizing folks in Jamaica and on the continent are the same people dominating the known universe right now any other last comments folks need to get in before we conclude things that stood out Everybody's satisfied. That's fine. 
we will check in tomorrow. Normal time. Thank goodness. White guests only. Uh, it is not, uh, I don't know, it's 79 degrees here in Seattle. I don't particularly think of that as scorching. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's not even 80 degrees. Uh, I don't know. It's not blizzard here. Uh, I, I checked the weather in London there. It was even cooler in London. It was, I think, like 73 Fahrenheit when I checked. So, I don't know. I guess if you are in places where it's warm and all, uh, stay hydrated. Drink your water. Uh, hopefully you either have AC or can go hang out. Some, maybe go to the movies. <laughs> I don't know. Go uh, go someplace where they have AC where you can hang out and sit comfortably for a little while until the sun goes down uh, where you can get some relief. Uh, but yeah, we are not having all that wacky weather here in Seattle. It is typical 79 cool summer day. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism. What I just said about our brain computer, we need to be thinking at a high level so we can solve the problem. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name-calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring context of white supremacy signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned okay round two name something that's not boring Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.